Good morning, Elevation Church. My name is Graham Watson. I'm a member of the preaching team here. I am standing in the sanctuary at 22 Willow uh, for the first time since the last time I preached. And I've got to be honest, guys, uh, it's throwing me off a little bit. You can't see this. I don't think anyone's, no one's told me. So I'm going to tell you, they've changed stuff in here. Uh, there's like a few pews missing. The flooring is different underneath my feet right now. Uh, I'm not going to adjust the camera to show you, but uh, be prepared for some changes coming. Uh, when we get back here. It is throwing me for a loop as we speak. So <laughs> we're working through a, a series of parables, parables of grace. Uh, and you may be thinking the same thing I was when I first read this parable we're going to walk through this morning, and that's uh, uh, where is the grace? What is going on here? Uh, this parable is super intense. We have pretty strong language and some fairly jarring challenges in this parable. We have a very strong image of Jesus condemning someone with no hope for them uh, and deep love and comfort for another person who has never been comforted before or certainly not for a long time. So yeah, I, I think we just have to explore this together. Let's see what we can make of this. Uh, I want us to just walk through this parable step by step. So if you have a Bible uh, with you today or if you want to just put a, a new tab up on your computer or whatever you're watching on right now, um, that would be good. We're in Luke 16, and this is the parable of the, often known as the rich man and Lazarus. So just prior to this parable, Jesus has been confronted by the Pharisees, and he paints this parable picture for his audience. He's been challenging the Pharisees in their interpretation of scripture, what we now kind of refer to as the Old Testament or the First Testament. He wants them to remember that it's really important and that it matters and that uh, its instructions, if carried out, impact the life of the follower in a really deep way, not just in surface level rules. The Pharisees were uh, a relatively new group of religious people in Jesus' time who often came into conflict with him over interpretations of the law. He was often accused by them of not following the law properly and he argued back with them often that it was they who didn't follow the law properly. And so he paints this parable for us. Right at the beginning, we have a setup that we're familiar with that Jesus' audience would know uh, fairly well. We have a rich man and a poor man. What comes to mind to you when you hear of these two people? Who do you picture when I say a rich man? Who do you picture when I say a poor man? In Palestine at the time of Jesus, the people would have had images um, close to home, they would have been able to drop an image of who these people were. Because there were three distinct social classes that lived in this area. Jesus and his followers would have interacted with all of these classes or been part of one of them uh, their whole life. So the first group was the majority of the population and these people were subsistence working poor people. These people worked daily with their hands to live. They were kept at a low level of wealth through heavy taxation practices. This was the majority of people at the time. So I think it's just important for us to realize there wasn't really a middle class when this story was being portrayed. And that a lot of the Gospels, if we read that, remember there's not really a middle class in the society. So there's a large group of poor. There's also a small group of fairly rich people. These elites benefited from the heavy taxation and they, or at least they either benefited from it or they were at least able to avoid it themselves. These few at the top lived in palace-like structures 
and wore the finest of clothes. We're talking to the uber rich by today's standard, which Jesus, um, he goes on to describe the rich man in our story falling into this class of people. And then the third class of people in Palestine at the time were the destitute, these broken and battered, those who had either been given up or just been dealt a terrible hand, um, just had had an awful life, who uh, were outside of the daily grind and really just trying to stay alive at all costs. And it's these two extremes, the rich man and the beggar, Jesus draws the Pharisees to as they listen to this story and as we listen to this story. So let's just dive in together. I hope you have the, the, the story ready. So this rich man, we're told, wears the finest of clothes and he feasted every day. This is not regular food. He is having banquets all of the time. Excess was at his table and his tunic. He lived large and he reveled in the flavors his money could allow. He would not live day to day like so many around him, wondering where his next meal would come from. Only what pleasure to seek next to stave off his boredom. He was a connoisseur of all things good and right in the world. And to our listeners and to us, surely he was a man blessed by God who followed the law and found favor in God's eyes, clearly. Because we see through the Bible incredible figures of faith like Abraham, Joseph, David, Solomon, all found deep favor with God and were rewarded with incredible earthly wealth and means because of their faithfulness. So it just seems like a natural correlation if we read the Bible to realize that the people who have the most are clearly the ones that God favors more than others. This man was loved by God, right? And he could delight in the best God's creation had to offer. And then we're told of a destitute man who sat just outside his door named Lazarus. Although why his name matters is beyond us. His lot in life is no doubt due to his sins, right? Well, the sins of his family in some way, he's reduced to begging which is incredibly annoying to be confronted with and incredibly degrading for Lazarus to have to participate in. We get no sense in this story that the rich man acknowledged Lazarus. We got no sense that he didn't. Only that Lazarus longed for the scraps at the rich man's table. In one of the commentaries I was reading, they pointed out in this kind of feasting and revelry that this rich man would have been participating in often every day, we're told, uh, the custom was often to between courses when you had to clean up your mouth and your hands, you would um, wipe uh, all the excess of what you've been eating on bread, right? Like le there's not really paper at this time. Napkins and uh, tablecloths would be very expensive. The cheapest way to wipe your hands and your mouth would have been bread. And you just kind of wipe and then you could toss it aside uh, to the ground and continue on with the next real food you were eating. So it's likely that, that the scraps Lazarus was hoping for were the, nap the used napkins of this rich man's feasting. It's a, an image, a really, really intense one to think about. He just longed for the scraps, the stuff he wasn't even eating. Uh, this visceral language of this story <laughs> reminds us that Lazarus was not comforted with bread, but comforted, but he was, he was not comforted with bread, he was confronted with dogs who would lick his sores. That's the language of this parable. I think it's probably the grossest image in all of the Gospels. Um, it's, it's pretty stomach-turning to think about. These were not uh, cute COVID puppies <laughs> coming for snuggles. 
these were street dogs as desperate as Lazarus for anything they could get. And so we're not really surprised, are we, when Lazarus dies. We'll find no mention of a funeral as you're reading along for this man. What fate befell him on earth, we don't know. But we do know, we're told, that he was carried up to heaven to rest in the embrace of Abraham. Comfort, warmth, and peace that he had not felt on earth for a very long time, possibly ever. Now here we are left in shock a little bit, right? The broken beggar, close by Abraham's side. What a twist. Like Cinderella, or my favorite, Shrek, this compelling story reminds us that outward appearances are not always indicative of the final fate of a character. There's a reversal of roles here, and it's a classic story we love. And so let's just pause for a moment. These parables have us identify with characters. All stories do, and perhaps this morning, as we're reading this, the character you identify the most with is Lazarus. Maybe you aren't laying at a gate, fending off wild dogs, but for some of us this morning, we do have a deep hunger that we can't stop. Material needs that are going unmet. A desperation just to be seen or noticed, to be acknowledged as equal, or at the very least, worthy. The grace in this story for Lazarus is that suffering will end. This is not an eternal thing. There is a finality to what we're going through. The grace is that you are named and held in an embrace for eternity. And the church has sent out um, packages to get us through this Lenten season. And for this week, you are invited to articulate a deep need that you have. There's a, a cardboard square. We want to invite you this week to write down something you really need on the card. Maybe it isn't obvious, a need you haven't been able to articulate even to yourself in a while because acknowledging it would be hard, believing it will not even be met. So why even articulate it in the first place? But if you're willing to take some time this week, we want you to sit with that and try to articulate a need that you have, the way Lazarus may have stood outside the rich man's house with a cardboard sign himself. If Lazarus is who you identify with this morning, I want you to just sit in this space. Whatever torment, feelings of complete isolation, that no one sees your agony, these are not final feelings. They will end. For this is the audacious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the last shall be first. You will be comforted. For that is the heart of Jesus' mission then and now. This is not an eternal thing. Uh, if this is where you're at this week, I just want you to stop here. You can either like put me on mute and go do something else or just turn the service off completely. Um, I just want you to sit in this space. Shortest sermon ever, or maybe it still feels too long. I don't know. Um, work on your cardboard card. But if, if that's all you need this week to just be reminded that there is, uh, <laughs> that we're named and we're known and we're held, by God through the incredible suffering we go through, then, I, then that's all you need this morning. Um, but if you're like me and the rest of the story, uh, this story isn't very comforting, it, it really actually just confronts a lot of stuff in me, then we're going to keep uh, going and dive into what happens next. But if that's all you need, then uh, it's great to see you and have a great week. Okay, 
the rest of us. Uh, this story keeps going, because now we get on to our friend, the rich man, who we still don't have a name for. Jesus doesn't seem to care about his name, despite his incredible importance. I mean, after all, how many rich people at the top of the world can we name, right? There's a bunch of people who are just killing it in terms of material wealth that I could rhyme off uh, right here today. You probably could too. How many rich people can we name? Or how many people do we just kind of treat with a little bit of extra ooh and ah when we find out their job is really cool? Uh, or they make a lot more money than us. Or their status in our society is a little higher than ours. We remember those people. We tend to revere them a little differently. How many, how many people, how many beggars names do you know? Uh, do, you, do we treat them the same way when they come in the room? seems odd that Jesus would act this way, right? That he wouldn't give the rich man a name, but he gives Lazarus a name. So we're told our rich man ends up in hell. Why did he end up there? I don't think the parable is entirely clear to us. Only that he received good things while on earth, while Lazarus did not. He is in agony, certainly not in the arms of Abraham, where he believed a man of his good grace would end up. We read that he is now noticing, perhaps for the first time in a long time, far off Lazarus. He can see him at Abraham's side. You see, now Lazarus is someone he wants to get to know. And he calls out to Abraham, ordering Lazarus around. Send him to bring water to cool my tongue. Even in death, the pattern of seeing Lazarus as less than, little more than a servant, are still so deeply a part of how he sees others. But now, Lazarus has something he needs. The truth is, the truth is, Lazarus has always had something that he needs. He's always had and been a deeper reason for his own existence. What is the point of all these things if we can't share them with those who need? To bring about goodness for someone who has had so little. The rich man, I don't believe, was condemned for being rich, but for failing to use those riches for a greater purpose than his own self-satisfaction. Uh, John Stott uh, comments on this passage, and he just has a, an incredible piece just about the needing of this, that, that it wasn't about his riches, it was about the misuse of his gifts. He writes that the story could equally well have featured a politician with their power, or an academic with their brains, or even a preacher with their eloquence. Indeed, anyone with any kind of resource or skills. Everyone possesses something of the sort be it no more than a heart and a hand and a span of life. And to everyone is given some Lazarus at the door, a test case as to whether they will use those possessions rightly or wrongly, with love or with self-indulgence, bringing God's will into the matter or leaving it out. And the question is posed by him, will we or will we not bring into time the considerations of eternity? That is the question. Will we or will we not bring into time the considerations of eternity? Abraham points out, as our story continues, to this, he calls him a child, this rich man, child before him, 
He points out that there is a chasm between them. Abraham says to him, between us and you is a great chasm. It's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It's a wonder that the man had also not noticed the chasm before. Perhaps he was too focused on calling out for water to subside his burning anguish. But he had never noticed it before. The truth is, that chasm had been there for a very long time. This chasm was not new. It had been in his life for a very long time, even before he died. Separating him from Lazarus, not allowing Lazarus to come to him, and keeping himself at a safe distance from Lazarus and Lazarus types. A channel he had no doubt dug himself by staying in comfort and convenience over engaging in challenge, kneeling to Lazarus himself as he waited outside his door. It's a chasm dug one shovelful at a time. The rich man's sin was failing to notice what was right in front of his face. Lazarus' suffering was just part of his landscape. His suffering was as natural to him as the ocean view from his penthouse suite and the imported fruit on his gourmet breakfast table. It's a channel we dig ourselves subtly, one comfortable shovelful at a time, often pretty unintentionally, simply by staying in our lanes, looking out for our own best interests and certainly our, our families. It takes, I think, fairly conscious effort to not dig this chasm between ourselves as we become more affluent. And once our rich man realized this chasm is too far to cross, I mean, like he, if he was going to cross it, it should have been a long time ago before it got so deep. It's far too late for him. Our friend, the rich man, finally thinks of others. But he, he thinks of only his own family back home. His circle of care can still only expand so far outside of himself. But it's a start, at least, right? He begs for Lazarus. Again, even the, the thought of him is still just like, oh, he's a servant, he will do things for me. He can bring me water, he can go see my family. He begs Lazarus to go to his father's house and warn his brothers, for they will no doubt carry on in fine linen, feasting every night, digging a deeper chasm between themselves and the good news and the deeper work and joy to be had on earth. Now, Abraham points out to him, look, your family has Moses and the prophets, former leaders of God's people, who are often calling people back to follow God more closely. This should give us pause, right? By Jesus' time, Moses and the prophets, and by our time, they're all long dead. Distant memories in children's bedtime stories, right? Well, the common sentiment um, at the time and, and is often that Moses is pretty closely linked to the first five books of the Old Testament, um, often called the Torah. Uh, and the prophets have many books named after them as well. In fact, one way of describing the Old Testament works is as um, the scriptures of Moses, the prophets, and the other writings. So there is, he's kind of alluding, I think, to that his family still has Moses and the prophets because their words and their instructions and their leadership are all still very well contained in scripture. This man's family still has Moses and the prophets if only they would listen and study. But they have neglected the study of scripture as he had done too, as the Pharisees had truly done as well. For they did not listen to Moses and the prophets who called people to remember 
They were once slaves. The people who call people to remember that what oppression felt like, lest you become the oppressor yourself. You see, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The rich man and his family, and those of us who likely made up his friendship circle, or wish we could, all had the opportunity to get this right, to see the chasm and reorient our life to building bridges rather than holes. We know that because we too have these words to continue to study from. I don't think in 2021, even um, post-Jesus, we can write the Old Testament off as something that doesn't matter, the same way that Jesus did not write it off. This was Jesus' scripture. And it's hard to understand, and it's still pretty challenging today, which is why when we look at it, let's look at it together. The parable ends pointing out that even if someone was raised from the dead, his family would still not listen to what they had to say. It's interesting words for Luke's readers, us, really, in a world where uh, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, too. And is that ever enough for us to listen to on these points as well? So my initial question this morning was, where is the grace in all of this? Well, I think this is grace. Remember, this rich man is not real. Lazarus is not real. All of these are parables and stories that Jesus made up to teach us. This rich man is as real as the seeds in the garden or the yeast in the bread. They're used to teach things to us, his audience. The grace is for us the Pharisee, the reader, the churchgoer, who may have lost sight of the words of Moses and the prophets, who may not still reorient everything based on a visit from someone raised from the dead. But there's still hope for us. We have time before us to reorient, to focus our riches, material or immaterial, on the deeper work of gospel that Moses and the prophets tried to call people to over and over and still call to us over and over. We can use a lot of our stuff, our wealth, our very hands and hearts for deeper purposes this week and beyond. And that's where I want to end. I want to read this quote again as a challenge for us to think about as we go into this week. John Stott says that everyone possesses something of this sort, be it no more than a heart and a hand and a span of life, and to everyone is given some Lazarus at the door. A test case as to whether they will use those possessions rightly or wrongly, with love or with self-indulgence, bringing God's will into the matter or leaving it out. So will you, Elevation Church, will you or will you not, this week and onward, bring into time the considerations of eternity? That's our question. That's a question I want you to talk about in uh, neighbors groups today. If you're into that kind of thing, we have neighbors groups throughout our city. You can uh, jump on your calls fairly soon. If you do not have a specified neighbors group that you are part of, um, there is a link in the comments of this video and you can join a neighbors group there and have a discussion. Thanks for your time this morning and I hope you all have a great week and I can't wait for you to come see the new floors at this church.